I think one of the things that I would say or behave differently than, I'm trying to answer your question, behave differently than the typical sort of evangelical church is don't assume you're right. Don't assume that you know what right actually is. And, and maybe we would do better to listen more and to accept more mystery because, and, and, and this is, this is so different because we want to be right. We want to have the, you know, we want to have it down. We want to be assured that we're on the right team. We want to be sure that our ticket is stamped. We want to have the right color team jersey. Well, you know, we have 30,000 brands of Christianity. That just seems nuts to me. And really, I mean, are all of them right? Are none of them right? I mean, we spend so much energy over matters of theology. We're just like that political, you know, the, the, the diametric arguments in, in politics. It's the same problem. You know, it's like if I taught, you know, pick the topic, pick the religious topic, it's controversial and people will polarize really, really quickly. And so what we've done is we've just really become fractionated and we've become so focused on belief systems that we don't have good practice and we don't have behavior that matches any of the belief systems we purport to observe. there, my friends. I'm Seth, and I'm glad you're here. Another fantastic conversation today. So uh, many of you hear me plug every single week, and this is kind of that now, a support the show on Patreon kind of thing. So everything, everything has costs. And there's, I don't know, almost 40 people, I guess, that keep the lights on, that make this show actually possible. There's a level there uh, where a few of us have a conversation. And so the first one of those was with Danielle Kingstrom, and I'm extremely excited for today's. Today's will be part two of the patron conversations with Jim Bono. A bit about Jim before he gives you his own faith story a bit. Uh, I've been engaged with Jim on social media and and via email. Uh, gosh, I don't know how many months now, but and it's been a blessing to get to know him. And I'm humbled by his support of the show, as with everyone else that supports the show in any way. But Jim is so wise. Uh, the more that I get to know him, uh, the smarter he gets. And so it is my privilege to present this conversation to you. Uh, part two of the Patron Conversations with Jim Bono. Welcome to the show and welcome to a different version of the show. I appreciate you as a patron. I am excited to talk to you uh, this evening. I've been looking forward to this for some time, regardless of my lack of calendaring skills. Uh, so to be fair, usually whoever the person is that I'm trying to book, there's someone in some third party that's doing all the work for both of us, which yeah, I've come to yeah. really rely on those people. But I don't have that for me. And and my wife doesn't run this calendar. I have to. And I'm really not good at it. But welcome. Welcome. Thank you, Seth. 
So you have been one of the most active people on um, on social media sites, and a lot of what you bring when you comment, like I really have come to value your input. If anything, I've learned that there are a lot of people, and and so many people know so much more things than I do about different things that I didn't know that I want to know about, and I count you amongst that list. And so before we get going, okay. I, wanted to, I wanted to tell you, I've, I always really value that, but I want to know more about you. And so you sent me you know, a Word document months ago, it must have been four months ago, five months ago, of a little bit of your story, but for those that will eventually be listening, they don't have that. So yeah. what would you want people to know about you? Oh, wow. Um, well, I was born and raised in California on a dairy farm. I was the fifth of six kids. And sort of the original nuclear family were four kids, and then there was quite a gap. And I was the uh, Christmas party accident. <laughs> and so in September, I um, was got born and was raised on the farm. And, you know, with a dairy, it's 365 days a year, twice a day. And uh, grew up in a, in a very rural, um, very traditional conservative environment. There were five classrooms in our school for eight grades, and there were 12 kids in my eighth grade graduating class. So that gives you an idea. We're talking really tiny. And um, you can only split a farm so many ways. So I knew that that wasn't going to be in my future. Went off to high school and then the local community college and jumped from there to the UC system and graduated when I was 20. And was going to do a master's in public health at UC Berkeley and ended up with a summer job on a Native, Indian, a Native American Indian reservation. And that summer lasted six years. Hmm. So was, as far as I know, the only white guy the tribes ever hired and ended up actually running the health clinic for them for a while. And then met my wife. She was visiting from Seattle. She had family there. And we got married. And then shortly after our first child was born, we moved to Seattle because she had some specific medical needs. And I was going to restart my you know, education. So I did my master's work at the University of Washington. We got the medical stuff for our daughter taken care of and then um, did 20-something years in healthcare, and then uh, got a job with the University of Illinois and worked in academia for the last 23 years, and then a couple of years ago retired to be the primary caregiver for my wife, who has, uh, she's older than I am, so she had developed some health issues, hmm. so it was uh, just time to be home. So I've been home for a while. So what does that look, so there's a lot there's that I want to unpack there. A, sure. 20 years old, and you're done with undergrad, right? Yeah. That seems quick. Either that or I'm slow. No, no, no. It was, it was, I was just driven because like I knew that there wasn't going to be a place for me in that little tiny town. And so that was my, that was my ticket out. And then from there, uh, some of my, some of the favorite people that I engage with, um, one of them is Mark Charles and another one that I engage with much less, but I really value her voice is Caitlin Curtis. And they just bring an insight that I'm not familiar with. So I'm curious, why yeah. do you think, uh, you know, to, to play off what you said, you know, pretty much the only white guy, like why you, like what were, was it something that you had to offer? Was it maybe just an interview question that you nailed or were you, were you the only qualified what? candidate or? <laughs> <laughs> they, they, well, they had just had that the clinic had just had a huge fire and it had literally burned to the ground and they were doing clinic in the back half of a Methodist church that was so old, we literally put buckets on the desks when it rained because the rain would come right through the shingles on the roof. And they just needed an extra pair of hands. And it was gonna just be, can you come and help us? We need to try to find some money. So can you, if you can figure out how to write grants, we'll pay you for a summer. Well, it, it just stretched and... What happened was I just, the, the woman who was the executive director was the Native American nurse practitioner, delightful woman, Annabelle Whipple. 
and and I worked for Annie for years and I just did whatever she needed me to do. And eventually she decided to uh, retire. And for about 18 months, I was the executive director of the clinic. Hmm. Uh, but then it then it just it was time for me to go. I mean, uh, our daughter was born. She had really specific needs that we just were not going to be able to get on the res. Right. How yeah. how did working on the res change? So I'm assuming at this time, um, are you are you Christian at this time, uh, or or a follower of Jesus, or, or or no? Yeah. What what happened? I was not raised anything. Um, but I had a, a very spiritual Catholic grandma from Italy. And so there was always a sense of spirituality, but there was no practice. I mean, you know, you're not going to make it into church if you're smelling like the hmm. barn. <laughs> um, so, so that just was not ever really in the cards for us. And my dad was nominally Catholic. My mom was nominally Methodist and we were all kind of nominally nothing. So when I moved to uh, the town where the res was, there was a little tiny Presbyterian church who had a pastor and his wife who had just graduated from Fuller. And he ended up on the res. And so that, so I was ripe, I was ripening and they were there. And so that was where I really came to faith, got baptized in the, in the river, in the, you know, in the national forest, the whole bit. So how does, so that's an entirely different, um, you know, coming for lack of a better metaphor, you know, coming to find Jesus metaphor, um, you know, on a res tribal. So how did being, you know, in a different culture maybe impact the way that you do church or, or did it? Well, it didn't because the, the, you know, the res, um, the res, the clinic on the res was the only health services in the town. So everybody got served. And then one of the grants we were able to get was a grant from the state of California, and it required us to serve everybody. So not only was there a tradition of serving everybody, but then when when we received the grant and built a new clinic, it became a requirement to do so. Hmm. So it just sort of formalized what we were doing already. But in other ways, the res was quite segregated. And one of the ways that it was segregated was there were white churches and there were Indian churches. And there would be a few people because families would intermarry and, and there would be, you know, there would be shades of stuff, but the little Presbyterian church was predominantly a white church. Now there would be kids from the res who would come in for the youth programs because we actually had a youth minister. And so they would participate there, but, but on Sunday they would go to the Methodist church, which was predominantly a, a Native American church. Hmm. Huh. So it was it was not integrated in that way. Is it now? Or do you spend much time still in that circle at all? I just went back for the first time in 40 years <laughs> this last September. They had the 60th anniversary of the founding of the clinic, and they, they flew me back, which was just amazing. Hmm. And Annabelle is still alive. There are only four of us who are still alive who were working at the clinic at that time. And, and we almost lost Annie. She had been really sick. And I don't really think the Valley is more integrated. Um, I mean, people are polite, you know, and families intermarry, but um, economically, it's not very economically integrated. There tend to be Indian businesses and Indian enterprises that are linked to the res and the tribes. And then there are a few, um, because it's really hard times in Kovalo right now. It's the name of the town is Kovalo. And economically, it's just really struggling. Um, there's, there was some thought that actually growing marijuana would be a way to revive the local economy, but that actually did not work out because large agribusiness ended up dominating that market and all of the small growers 
which used to be part of this sort of underground economy of Mendocino and Humboldt counties, actually got squeezed out of the work. So the unemployment rates in the, on the North Coast area are very, very high. Hmm. So really about the only economic engine going on right now are programs that the tribes have. Um, and that does lead to some sort of tense moments. So I don't have direct contact with much Native American anything where I'm at in Virginia, which is really sad because there's a lot of signage and everything's named for different tribes, but they're just elsewhere. Yeah. Yeah. I wish I had. I had more. Honestly, if I had been open, if my eyes had been open at the time, I had much more access to that type of influences or at least voices when I was in Texas. But I was a different human then. I wasn't even trying to look for that. Right. Right. Well, and then from there, I went to Seattle, and, and the Native peoples in Seattle and, and British Columbia have retained their traditions to a, a much greater extent than the California tribes. And then from Seattle, I moved to New Mexico um, to work in health systems in New Mexico. And in New Mexico, the tribes on their reservations are actually sovereign national entities, though most American Anglos don't know that. Mm-hmm. And and so, like, Acoma um, is actually way, way, way older than Boston. It's considered to be the, the, the oldest continually habited, inhabited location in North America. Really? So my exposure, yeah, so my exposure to Native populations is more, I think, than the average white guy. Um, and, and my sensitivities to their culture, because of my experience, in California on the res, I, I, I'm so grateful for it. Yeah. I, I just love the folks that I worked with. You mentioned academia. And so you're training, I don't believe you're a physician, correct? So you're training people how to run, um, medical practices or. Yeah, kind of what happened was I wanted to help manage and develop health systems. So after I helped grow the clinic in, in, uh, Northern California. I got my master's in healthcare admin from the University of Washington, worked in a local hospital there, single hospital, um, in the very trendy town of, of Bellevue, then moved to Albuquerque and worked for a Catholic system there that had three different hospitals. So it was bigger, it was more complicated, was there for about six years, moved to San Diego, where I worked for a system that had six hospitals, five different medical groups. Gosh, 20 to 25 years ago, had like over $2 billion in billings annually. Gracious. I don't even have any idea what they are doing now. So really complicated systems. And my job was to look at those neighborhoods, to look at the communities and figure out, okay, what's missing? Is it missing for, you know, are, are we missing a kind of service? Could we expand cardiology? Could we, you know, do these other sorts of services? How do we understand these markets? How do we reach out to the market? So my job was a combination of planning and marketing healthcare services. Now, on the side, I was also very interested in underserved populations. So to the extent possible, I would go, oh, and by the way, we could put a clinic here and it would actually be very, very busy. And even with a lower income group, we could break even on that. So there was always this sort of edge of sort of social awareness because of the time I'd spent on the res. Um, so, and because I frankly just grew up so poor. Yeah. So was doing that and then got an interview opportunity for a job in Chicago with the University of Illinois in their health science system. And they brought me in to work. They have six different health science colleges and they tried to get the doctors to talk to the nurses, to talk to the physical therapists, <laughs> you know, to talk to the dentists. And it was kind of a fool's errand, but it was a great idea at the time. And did that for a while. And then the dean of the College of Pharmacy, who's this wonderful friend of mine, and she lives here in Naperville, we were riding home on the train one night. And she said, you know, you should come work for me. And I thought she was joking because she has this really funny sense of humor. And I looked at her and I said, well, you know, I can be bought. I mean, that's literally what I said. 
<laughs> and she was serious. She said, how and much? And she showed up in my, <laughs> I know, like in retrospect, you just go, you know, like biggest forehead slap ever. Yeah. <laughs> because, you know, a, a, a week later, she shows up in my office with a department head and one of their more entrepreneurial faculty members. And we have an interview for an hour. And then I go to work for her and then she retired. And I worked for the department head who then became dean for a number of years. So I did that for about maybe 16, 17 years. And then the last couple of years at the university, I was the budget officer for the campus. Hmm. That's um, that's a lot so, of hats. Yeah. You sound a lot like, of hats. yeah. So my wife, I, I feel like anyone that listens semi-regularly would know. So my wife is a nurse and she works at a big health system. She works for the University of Virginia Hospital. And in oncology, right? Uh, yeah. Well, pediatric oncology, infusion, hematology, and some other words that I don't yeah. know how to say. Um, not just yeah. cancer kids. Like I, I think there'll be some kids, you know, with cystic fibrosis and anything that requires wow. a little bit more... I don't want to say skill because all nurses have a massive amount of skill. Um, yeah, just a different specialized. Yeah. Um, you know, things where you, I don't know the margin of error when you're administering drugs that are that potent teeny, on bodies that is that, that are that small is you just have to know what you're doing. You can't, you can't screw up. Right. So I want to circle back to what always gets my, my blood pumping. And so what, what form of Christianity would you call home today? And I often find that that's a hard question for myself to answer, but I'm curious as to what yeah. yours is, because I know a lot of our conversations have dived into, you know, mysticism and contemplation and uh, yeah. different, different, different stretched ways of Christianity. And so I'm really excited to hear the answer. Well, how about if I give you a bit of a process sure. to create context? Sure. Because not being raised anything and then graduating from college, you know, I'm, I'm like 2021 and I, in this little church with this brand new spanking pastor from, from Fuller. So that's what I get exposed to. And, and this guy who's still my good friend, his name's Toby Nelson. Toby's sort of very factual and very direct and um, so a lot of that early period was just open the top of my skull and pour it in. So learning everything, reading everything, you know, long discussions into the night, you know, yada, yada, yada. And I think that that pretty much encapsulates probably the first sort of a couple of decades you know, so starting at 20 into like the 40s, it was lots of Bible study, leading Bible studies, always engaged in something, always engaged, like, in, you know, because of my management background, engaged not only in, in the learning of the church, but also the management of the church. And so I would say that that would have been typical of your sort of mainline Protestant denomination. And, and Virginia and I kind of bumped around a lot. She is a church musician by training. So sometimes we attended where she had a job. Right. Okay. So she had a job at this little Presbyterian church. She became the music director, moved to Seattle. Uh, we actually went to, it's kind of strange. It was just in the neighborhood. We went to a sort of unaffiliated charismatic church for a while. That was interesting. Moved to a uh, to Queen Anne Hill, where she had a job uh, in a in a sort of a, a regular Presbyterian church. So we were in that. So for a long time, it was more Presbyterian than anything. And then Albuquerque, we were in a different flavor of Presbyterian. We did a small stint where she was worship leader at an Episcopal church, and then it was San Diego, and there was Assembly of God for a minute, uh, and a cavalry church. There were two different cavalry churches, so I'm kind of a mutt. Hmm. Um, I haven't heard any that. Baptist so, yet. Did I miss Baptist? I haven't heard that. 
you missed Baptist, but uh, I have a sister who's missionary Baptist. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, yeah, so there's that flavor in there, too. I also have a sister who's Baha'i, by the way. So, um, so really kind of a big spectrum of your typical evangelical, mostly mainline Protestant denominations. And then if you track Richard Rohr, it's, you know, order, disorder, reorder. Mm-hmm. So about in the 40s, because uh, remember this time, it was this was about the time where Oh gosh, what was the name of that whole program where they would get bunches of guys together in stadium? Promise Keepers. Okay. Promise Keepers was like happening kind of around this time. And I was I was co-leading a men's group. So you had the sort of marketing and content of Promise Keepers. And I'm comparing that to what I'm seeing in guys' actual lives. And the gap just becomes huge because we actually had a group of guys who, you know, there were a few guys who were sort of, I would say, sharing on a surface level. And then there was the, there were the guys who would stay later who would talk about their marriage falling apart. And yes, it did. The fact that they were on websites that led them into all kinds of problems, including getting fired at work. Um, so that there was a whole different set of conversations around very different deep issues. And so why weren't those lives just better if all you needed to do was pray harder? Mm-hmm. And what does pray harder even mean? And how was it that like listening to the same stories wasn't actually transforming their lives? Great question. So what happened was there was a period of disorder where I began to really dig into like, so what is it, you know, because some people are just really quite happy to show up to church to be, and and this is going to be sound really kind of mean, to be either entertained or to have a sense of just, so, hey, hi, Mm -hmm. hi, how you doing? You know, that sort of plastic smile thing. Yep. Um, and we're in a community that is affluent and really by far majority white as it turns out. So it's really easy to do that high BMW shiny teeth thing. And um, so that, but that wasn't working at a deeper level in these guys' lives. And so that became more of an issue for me. And for me, those answers to transformation really centered more in contemplation and going just deeper. Not not just repeating the same story and having it wash off, but looking for truth in a deeper, different way. So I'm it's it's kind of funny. In many ways, I just don't fit. Because I mean I could fit. You know, I I clean up decently. You know, you see that you see that the you know the profile pic. (laughs) I clean up decently. I can be polite. I can be civil and maybe even witty. And but but once you get past that and have more serious conversations, it begins to be really interesting because some people just get really afraid. Because they 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 don't want to do that they don't want to go that deep they don't want to be that exposed. Okay, that's fine. But for me, I'm really after much deeper stuff. And and Virginia is like the original existentialist, so it would just figure that we would rub off on each other that way. <laughs> so when we talk about religious stuff which we do a great deal, we just tend to operate at that level that more automatically falls into that second category of, of what Richard calls reorder and the deep, and what would be a, a more mystical or contemplative approach. So what practices has what practices have impacted you? So I mean there's a lot to contemplation. Um, and I am oh, by yeah. no means 
any form of an expert. I'm getting pretty good yeah. at the examine with intention. And by pretty good, I like I'm able to do it at a longer amount of time. Um, but I'm yeah. still by no means, I guess, able to do, I don't know. I, I'm not saying it well, but I'm by no means at a place that I'm like, yeah, let me teach someone else possibly how to begin, oh, how to do the exam. I'm, I'm by no means there. Um, so what yeah, are some yeah, of those yeah. things for you that you're like, you know, when I say contemplation, here's what I'm doing and with intention, here's what I'm trying to achieve. I think the exam and it's really, really helpful. I think that, and, and, and I'm going to put these, items in sort of two buckets because there are disciplines and in my mind the examine is a discipline and then there are helpful tools or helpful things and in my head that's a different bucket so in the tool in the toolbox you've got the examine you've got lexio divinia you've got um, a, a contemplative prayer uh, I get a little, you know, some people get nervous if you use the word meditation. So in most Christian circles, the idea of contemplative prayer is easier to understand. We do have a regular contemplative prayer group at the church that I've been attending. And that's something that, you know, I'm, I at 64 am the youngest participant. Hmm. Uh, hmm. So so there are a group of people who are interested in those disciplines, but then there are helpful tools that also assist. Um, and, and some of them come out of other traditions. You know, the, the list of suggestions that I gave you recently in a couple of posts, Omid Safi comes out of the Sufi tradition. Um, a lot of poetry comes out of a contemplative tradition. Uh, Merton, you know, there are certainly Christian authors, um, uh, uh, John Don Scotus, uh, Merton um, would be in that tradition. And those sort of readings, those sort of podcasts, I find to be helpful sort of tools, but I don't consider them disciplines. So I'll, in, in my more relaxed, quote, quasi-retired life, you know, I'll garden, I'll, I'll be working on stuff around the house or helping Virginia, and I can have a podcast going. And that is a form of, of sort of walking meditation for me. I agree. Yeah. So I, that's the times that I listen to podcasts. Well, A, I don't really listen to religious podcasts with intention. I don't want to yeah. I don't want to have someone else's questions become mine because sure. a lot of people are way smarter than me. And I'll hear something and be like, yeah, I'm going to start saying that. And then it quickly becomes disingenuous. So I don't want to do that. But yeah, I, like I listen to yeah. a lot of finance podcasts and I really like, um, uh, have you seen the, the, there's a show called, it's got Rami Malek, uh, Mr. Robot. I don't know if you've seen that show or not. I, I almost never get a chance to watch TV, but I've seen trailers for Mr. Robot. So it's, well, A, it's, it's a good, it's a decent show for a few seasons, and yeah. then it fell off the rails. I think they had a new showrunner. But he has like a true crime podcast that someone's hired him, and it's very well scripted. But he is the voice uh -huh. that you're hearing. Yeah. Uh, and so that's one that I've yeah. listened to recently. So, um, But yeah, podcast I find hit a niche for me that I hear something. Although now, Jim, I'm finding that when I'm listening to something that is unreligious related, I'll hear a truth in it and be like, oh, that's like Jesus. Like I'm, I'm beginning to yeah. leach other things out and I'm like, hey, I like, I like this. This can be applied. I'm pretty sure Paul said yeah. something like that or pretty sure that, you know, that's also in numbers or, or whatever. Yeah. So, yeah. Actually, if I can jump in, yeah. Krista Tippett's On Being podcast that I also recommended. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. Really, really good. And it's not directly religious usually, mm -hmm. but oh my gosh, it does contain really fascinating nuggets of truth. There was one that she did. I want to listen to a few of hers. Uh, there was one... What's his name? Uh, his last name is Height. Hate. It's H A I D T. He's like a a, psych, a psychologist. He taught at UVA, and now he's up, I think, up in New York. I'm trying to think of his name. Uh -huh. But they did one yeah. on. Um, if I find it, I'll send it to you. They did. He did a TED talk as well, basically talking about here's why our politics and here's why we argue everything, basically in a binary way, because oh, here's yes. like here's how your brain actually distills truth. 
And then here's so why that matters. Daniel is his name. Daniel Height or Hate. I don't know how to say his name. Yeah. Um, too many consonants. So good. Uh, too many consonants. So, so good. But yeah. Um, yeah, Krista's good. Uh, I like Krista. Um, I would I would like to maybe maybe be like a Krista, but she's way more polished than I am. Um, what are some things religiously that you would hold that you think for you have a huge truth and a huge impact and, and affect the way that you do life and marriage and community and you know your willingness to do things like this that maybe you know um, middle America Bible Belt would would listen to and hear yeah I don't understand how you could hold that Jim and then break it further than that like why like so here's what here's what it would be you know for so for, there's a lot of ways that you could go with that um but i'm really more interested in the why and then i'd like to take that and go with okay what happens if more people latch on to that what does it look like a few years from now like if this changes humans what would that look like oh boy that is like the definition of an open question right. um rem- <laughs> remember there was just a little bit ago on the site, one of the participants said, asked a question, and they were asking for a definition, and they gave four different choices. And the choices were kind of mutually exclusive without naming names. Do you remember that? Uh, I do. I feel like it was asking about, like, is is the Bible this or is Jesus this? Is that the one you're talking was, about? Is 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 Jesus this? Yeah, I, and, I do remember And it was asking for four sort of definitive religious positions about Jesus. Mm-hmm. And I explicitly did not respond. <laughs> and in the first half of my life, I would have been all over that like a dog on a bone. But I think one of the things that I would say or behave differently than, I'm trying to answer your question, behave differently than the typical sort of evangelical church is don't assume you're right. Don't mm. assume that you know what right actually is. And and maybe we would do better to listen more and to accept more mystery. Because and and, and this is this is so different because we want to be right. We want to have the, you know, we want to have it down. We want to be assured that we're on the right team. We want to be sure that our ticket is stamped. We want to have the right color team jersey. Well, you know, we have 30,000 brands of Christianity. That just seems nuts to me. And really, I mean, are all of them right? Are none of them right? I mean, we spend so much energy over matters of theology. We're just like that political, you know, the, the, the diametric arguments mm-hmm. in, in politics, it's the same problem. You know, it's like if I taught, you know, pick the topic, pick the religious topic, it's controversial and people will polarize really, really quickly. And so what we've done is we've just really become fractionated and we've become so focused on belief systems that we don't have good practice. Mm-hmm. And we don't have behavior that matches any of the belief systems we purport to observe. So, so the dilemma, and this is why I think flipping it, flipping the equation is really helpful. So being silent instead of talking when somebody else is sharing their truth with you Um being open to that truth, trying to understand it from their view, um, why service, in my mind, is more important than belief. Because, like, and again, look at my history. You know, Assembly of Gods and Presbyterians. Really, like, is one of them right and the other wrong? 
And what happens to the ones that are wrong? Is there no mercy there? So if you go down those roads, you become more and more and more locked in views that end up just doubling down and doubling down and doubling down. And it doesn't allow for any outreach and any understanding of other people at a very basic human level. So I think people like Ibu Patel, who is Muslim here in Chicago, pretty sure was a, a MacArthur Genius Grant awardee, does interfaith service. He doesn't have interfaith dialogue. He has interfaith service. So Muslim kids and Christian kids will go to a really downtrodden neighborhood in Chicago, like Inglewood. They'll serve meals. After that, when they have hung out together for a while and realized that, you know, they're just, they're more alike than not, that they aren't creeping each other out, that they have similarities, et cetera. So after the service together, then they talk. And they talk about that service is important in our tradition. Oh, mine too. So they find common ground by serving together. And I think that that service is really important because I think service makes a space for people to be together and recognize each other's humanity. And I think that we don't do that very well. And I think especially we don't do that very well in our churches. You know, Easter's coming up. A church that I'm affiliated with will do like eight services. There'll be music over the top. We'll hire soloists. Probably won't even break even. Why are we doing that for people who show up once a year? Like that's just financially nuts. Yeah. And we'll we'll do that, but we won't take that same amount of money that we've just paid on soloists for air quotes here entertainment and go to North Aurora and help build habitat houses. Yeah. That's just backwards to me. Do you think it's intentional that church leadership is being trained? Um, and this is one of the questions that you referenced in one of our emails. You know, the seminaries yeah. seem to be churning out. I, I want to say it right. So at one point or another, we did like a, a what's called like a Sunday night live at our church. And I, and I will say, I know that my pastor is a minority amongst many. Uh, we basically talked about the hero's journey and how basically yeah. we all do that. Like a lot of Joseph Campbell, you usually don't get that yeah, at yeah. any church, much less a Baptist church. But it was you know, a small group of people, 15 20 people uh, intentionally yeah. wrestling with some really hard topics for like, you know, four or five, six weeks at a time. So good. And, and someone so had good. asked him the question, you know, well, if, if, if we can figure out how to, you know, get over whatever this hump is before we get to the next, you know, dip that we, that we're called to action for, like, what is the purpose of the church? And he's like, I don't know. He's like, there's a part of me that needs to keep the lights on, but there's another part of me that's like, I need you to stop coming to me to get filled. Like my job is to help you intentionally get to a place that you can communicate with God and grow without constantly having to be handheld. But I also know that that will require the membership of the church to change all the time and it is not financially feasible and most people aren't comfortable with it. And I, th I think there's a lot of truth in that, but I don't know how you fix it. Like I don't know how the institution would sign up for that. Actually, I have a super close friend who is a retired attorney, and we are actually trying to look at exactly that problem. Because over the course of like the last four years, at this particular church, I was asked to step in and fix the mission effort because it was just a hot mess. There was no financial oversight. There was no charter. People didn't know how to communicate. We didn't know which, why we were even involved in some missions and not. There was no review process. Took 18 months, got that fixed. My friend and I then did a survey. The church assessment tool was the instrument we used. We surveyed the whole congregation as part of developing a new sort of strategic vision. We developed that vision statement. We developed a new mission statement. We did an intensive demographic study of our community. Because, of course, every church says, oh, we need to go out and attract new families. Really, there are four of them in our, you know, in a eight-mile radius. 
<laughs> you know? so, so putting a focus on recruiting new families is pretty stupid for our particular congregation when it's a sea of blue hair. So that doesn't make sense. So we did that. And then we tried to work that strategic plan with a couple of consultants and develop it. And then I got put on the finance committee and with another friend of mine and I, we've developed a six-year financial model for the church with a debt reduction plan, et cetera. So the mechanics, oh man, I understand the mechanics. But the dilemma is that are the lives transformed? And the guy who wrote the church assessment tool talks about a measure of engagement. Because if people are engaged by however they measure that, and there's a way to just respond to that on a qualitative scale, if that congregation is engaged, everything else follows. Because if they're engaged, they'll study. If they're engaged, they're, they'll give. If they're, if they're engaged, they'll serve. So we need to figure out how to engage people. It's not a count of butts and seats and bucks in the plate. It's a, it's a measure of heart. And most churches aren't even looking at that. Most churches are really happy to just keep the lights on and, and to hope that the downward trends that are expressed by the Pew Memorial Trust, you know, that that erosion isn't going to happen at their little church. But the, the bishop of our ELCA Synod, who just retired, said by 2025, he expects 20% of the churches in the Chicago Synod to close. Mm. Yeah. So, like, we had better figure this out, because what, what we're selling traditionally, people aren't buying. And I think people are really, really, really interested they're just not interested in the same old package. They're not interested in stories of what they're, how do I, how do I say this? They're interested in something deeply meaningful. And sometimes that can be stories, but they're interested in not doctrine and not, not argument but reality and service and and the kinds of things that people lump under the word spirituality, they're more interested in spirituality than they are in religion, but we haven't taught that, and we often, your guy as a remarkable exception, oh my gosh, the hero's journey, mm-hmm. you know, that's brilliant because I think largely that's what more people want Yeah. At a, at a deeper level. Now, you know, I know lots of folks who come and show up on Sunday at our two facilities and they're perfectly happy to walk in and shake, you know, 14 hands, throw 20 bucks on the plate or whatever. Some people do tons more and go home. And it's really just sort of a social thing. And in my like nasty moments, I sometimes will say, you know what? Our church is just the Kiwanis with the cross on top. And, <laughs> and that, that needs to be on a pretty, shirt. <laughs> pretty offensive. So, so the other night, literally, I'm having this conversation with my friend Bill, the attorney, and I literally draw an old fashioned, you know, a, 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 a tea table, you know, an accounting tea table, you know, debits and credits. And I put the Kiwanis on one side and I put the church on the other. <laughs> and I said, okay, so what do you get from the Kiwanis and the church? You get community. Okay, fine. I, I can work with that. You get service. I can work with that. You can get some friendship. I can work with that. Okay, but then, you know, after about six or seven things that are similar in both environments, and of course, no, you don't have you know, spiritual formation and Sunday school and stuff. But then over on the church side, oh, well, then you've got to believe our doctrine and you've got to give us cash and you've got to give us, you know, so, so 
so that the other sort of things that you layer into that are belief-based around church is actually we put more requirements to belong to a church than we do to belong to the Kalanas. And that was an exercise that gave Bill and me a little pause because I thought, well, gosh, no wonder my son is really completely uninterested. Yeah. Because, you know, he's a great guy. He's, he's a very moral guy, but he doesn't see the church acting in a way that is really consistent with what it says its mission is. And I got to tell you, our church is a lovely place full of nice people. We just sent, here, here is a real-time conversation being replayed between me and the senior pastor. Why are we sending our senior high kids to Haiti? Really? Like, North Aurora isn't just eight miles away or other places aren't closer. We're buying airplane tickets. We're sending them to the Caribbean. Okay, I understand. It was an earthquake once upon a time. And we, and we did send people and we did send money. And yes, there's still a massive need. But the amount of money that it takes to send our 25 kids to Haiti, if we actually, you know, so what is this really about? If we actually want to support Haiti, we would take that several thousand dollars and we would send it to Haiti. We'd actually hire two carpenters for a year and they would feed their family and do lots and lots of work. And, and I pressed our person on this. And finally, in a moment of honesty, he said to me, you got to understand, our, for our parents, they would rather write a check for a couple thousand dollars per kid and have it be the spring break experience than actually spend time in North Aurora, because that would take emotional and time investment. Hmm. And I just had nothing to say. That's heartbreaking. It's the truth. Yeah. And it is heartbreaking. And that, and our church is considered a pretty good church. Looks pretty shiny from the outside. But why are we doing what we do, we're doing? How are we, you know, and on the finance committee, I'm watching how and where we spend our money. Half of our money is spent on staff. And when you include staff in the buildings that we have, if we have two, two sites, 80% of our budget is just on the building and on the staff that's in the building. Hmm. There are 97 churches in Naperville. We are not under-resourced. How are we different than anybody else? How are we transforming lives? So that would be what we would say are we're, you know, supposed to be our, our vision. I'm kind of having trouble seeing it. Yeah. Well, I don't think it's just you. I think a lot of people are having trouble. Yeah. I mean, that I mean, churches close shoot, there was a church that closed up in um, you know, in my hometown here uh just a few weeks ago. Um, you know, they yeah. just, they just closed and then another church moved right in like a new church startup. And I was like, well, that's good. Maybe we need another church in that building. That All that goes in that building is Maybe. a church for a week or right. a year. Right. Um, I mean, cause, cause you can't really repurpose them for anything except maybe a preschool. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is something that I think that used to be like a convenience, not a convenience store, like a, like a Kroger or a, you know, a grocery store. Oh, it's just yeah, a big yeah. box. So, I mean, it could literally be. I mean, the Salvation Army is right next to it. Like, it could be annexed and actually used to give away free things to people that need it. Um, And instead, we put a church in it, which, again, I'm sure that church is doing some great things. But I know, you know, there's homeless people, and I know there's people that need to eat. And, you know, there's just, I mean, there's other things that we could do with that. Um, You're not the only person that's told me that about, you know, sending youth away or doing anything like that, really. like Yeah. And and see, Seth, I think that this is really a question that we really, really, really desperately need to think about because like, you know, I'm in one space in my life and you're in another space in your life. Your kids are young Mm -hmm. and, and, and having them in a church, having those experiences during those formative years, I think are super important, but I think having them in an envelope that is really doing something and and going in a direction i think that 
the vision that a church has is more important than we often think about. Because if there's no difference between, if the only differences are like on your statement of faith, but it doesn't really show up on a Sunday, then there's not a lot of differences between what go on in the different buildings. And, and so, and I think there are fewer and fewer people from the outside that are interested in that. And so we're missing the opportunity to be transformative in the world, which was the original purpose of the church, the way that I read stuff. Hmm. And how, how will we be transformative? Because I think we see two models. We see models where the, the typical church and the typical congregation continues to have attendance slide, and it's in some places circling the drain. And we have a lot of other folks who are doing, you know, like Love Rob Bell. I think he's brilliant, really like by far the majority of his work. Some of the Rob casts, I think, are really, really great and fun. And some are, okay, well, that wasn't, you know, my topic today, but okay, that was good. But the dilemma that I see with a world full of podcasts is how do you change, how do you, how do you prosecute social justice? I mean, you can talk about it, and Rob does a pretty good job. He really supports a group that drills wells in Africa, and that's a big deal, and they do this big annual thing, and that's wonderful. But how do you link 40 podcasts together to say, we need to fix our immigration policy, or we need to fix how we look at divisions of race or class or, or income inequality. I don't see an easy way to do that. So I think the question of what is that next model for the church in the West is a desperately important question because the seminaries, the seminaries will are are way behind because the seminaries are managed by the denominations. The denominations own the color and cut of the team jersey. So that's not where the change will happen. If anything, the change will be um, retarded, especially at a denominational level. And and sometimes the individual faculty can scoot around that but a whole seminary really can't. So I don't quite know what that next model is going to be, but it's something I'm deeply interested in. I am as well. Um, but mostly because, well, I want to, I want to be careful how I say it. So I get a lot out of my church. I love my church, but I often yeah. feel like I'm participating in church in some of the discussions that I have like this, um, or some of the discussions, like I'll have, you know, private messages or private phone conversations with other listeners. And sometimes that's a group yeah. conversation and that is just as much an impactful community. And I grow and I learn and I, you know, we pray together. We just, as, as any yeah. church services. Um, so I don't know what the yeah. future of the church looks like, but I know it's not that brick building. Um, I know there's a place to meet and there's gotta be something like that to come together and celebrate and love on each yeah. other intentionally with people that you don't normally see. But I don't think it's yeah. a bunch of people coming to one place for one hour to be, as you said, entertained. Um, it, it'll, it, churches has to, for me, the church has to be, um, and I'm going to borrow this from one of the first episodes I recorded, like Sean Palmer, I think is who said it. He's like, you know, church needs to be these, this five mile radius here, you know, in Chicago or, you know, Winsboro, yeah. Virginia, these are our people. And so if they're hungry, if yeah. they have school debt, we feed them. if their gutters fall off, I got you. Like, I don't even care if you go to this yeah. church. I don't even care if you speak English. I've got you because that's what we should yeah. do. I don't know how you pay for that. Yeah. though. I don't know how you pay for that, nor do I know how you organize that's... it. And even once you figure that out, I don't, how you, I don't know how you don't become the next institution. Um, but it's worth, it's worth wrestling with. I, I agree completely. It's worth wrestling with. And I think, I think that, you do that on a on a bit by bit basis. I don't think that the stretch is that far. I don't think we have to like blow up things to actually get there. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a big big church in uh, Oak Brook called Christ Church Oak Brook. 
my friend Bill and I were sitting at, at a local Starbucks, and this big burly guy walks up to us and says, Hi, I'm the administrative pastor of Christ Church Oakbrook. And sorry, but I've been eavesdropping on your conversation, and it's fascinating. <laughs> and so we got into a three-way conversation. They're build, they, are, they are very mindful about extending their church. I was almost going to say extending their brand. Oh, was that a little Freudian? Uh, into Downers Grove, the town of Downers Grove. They're doing it in an industrial park. They're renting space. They're renting a beautiful auditorium in a wonderful corporate office that has like a three-story atrium that looks out on a lake. Brilliant, beautiful. They rent it on Sunday and everything else is small groups. Yeah, just community. Yeah. yeah. In that, what they've done is there's no, there's no capital. There's no overhead. There's no debt service. You know, they set up on Sunday, they break down on Sunday, and and what they do, if assuming that that's a viable model, is all that energy, all that money, all that engagement can be into the community, into the members, and into the, co- the, me- the community beyond the members. So I think without blowing things up, we can make those incremental moves. I hope we do. Um, I want to I wanna end... I want to end with this question, Jim. So give me give me two or three things that you're reading that as people listen, they're like, you know what? Yeah, I should go out and grab that book. Like, what are some things that are influencing what you're intaking now? Okay, well, there's the Universal Christ. I just <laughs> flipped around at my desk and happened to pick it up because, of course, I just finished it. And I will probably read it again. Is it good? I haven't, um, I haven't read it. I bought it. I haven't read it. Oh, yes. Just, just yes. <laughs> Do you get the emphatic nature of that response, dude? Yes. Read this book. It will. It's really, really different. It will take time. You can, people can can read this book one of two ways. They can read it with their head, or they can read it with the rest of their being. Now, I would suggest that you read it with your head as a filter, because of course you need to. Like. These are words. I need to process them. But let the don't read the book. Let the book read you. It's just really good. And then of course I've got Heart and Mind right here next to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I finished just finished it. And what I like about this the most is the very last part. Because it's all about practice. Mm-hmm. Because again, that the church, the contemporary church, spends a lot of time on belief, and we need, you know, okay, we need to have some basic beliefs. This is good, but we don't hardly spend any time on practice. And so we get our orthodox. We spend all our time arguing about our orthodoxy and an unorthopraxy. Well, I really, really like the fact that Alexander ends his book with practices. And some of them are contemplative. Um, so those are two things I'm reading. I haven't read The Universal Christ intentionally because um, I plan to talk with Matthew Fox about The Universal Christ and a few other people. And I, again, I want to make sure I keep them siloed. Um, I have, have yet to yeah. be able to get well, Richard. Well, Matt, but... Matthew is on the other side of my bed. <laughs> <laughs> Matthew Fox and Lama Somo, uh, his book, The Lotus and the Rose, a conversation between Tibetan Buddhism and mystical Christianity. Um, Matthew is is um, I, th- I think you'll have a very enjoyable conversation. I hope so. I hope so. Good. Well, Jim, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, you're welcome. Ten years later, I remember blue September skies. I remember how the city streets were so alive Ten years later there are questions that still haunt my mind Answers that are hard to find Places that remind me of you In this life One of the biggest things that I've taken away as I've listened back to this is 
We have to make room for there to be nuance with each other, both interfaith and intrafaith. We have to be willing to let others hold truth in a different way than we have. And if there's anything that I really have taken heart to or taken home is I don't need to be the first person that talks. I need to let there be silence and let others speak into that silence and I'll probably learn something. And I can't wait to see what it is that I will learn. But I know that both I and the other person, wherever they happen to be, at whatever time that we're having the conversation, will both grow uh, as we can both learn to control our impulses to just have to be right. And I'm so blown away by the stories of everyone that I talk to. And it's a privilege to be able to do this. So today's music is from Dave Pettigrew. You can find more information about Dave at DavePettigrew.net. But I wanted to take a bit of time. So Dave sponsors something called Holt International. At the end of this, just go down to the bottom, click on the show notes, see if it's something that interests you. Uh, If it is, fantastic. If not, maybe send it to somebody else. I really look forward to talking with you all next week. Have a good one.